0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we're excited to host our next event, uh, September 12th to the 14th, at the beautiful Javits Center Expansion in New York City. But our goal at those events and our goal here on these talks is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And a topic that we love to talk about here on Salt Talks is FinTech. It's an area on the SkyBridge side of the house uh, that we're also heavy investors in. Uh, But our guest today to discuss trends in FinTech uh, is Nelson Chu. Uh, Nelson is the founder and CEO of Percent, which is a global leader in financial infrastructure solutions. Uh, Founded in 2018, the company leverages proprietary technologies, integrations, and data to bring first-of-its-kind transparency and efficiency to lenders and credit transactions. Prior to Percent, Nelson founded a strategy consulting firm specializing in helping companies build products and raise capital for growth creating over $1 billion in equity value during his time there. Uh, Nelson began his career at several of the top financial services firms in the industry, including Bank of America and BlackRock. He's an active angel investor with notable investments, including BlockFi, Care of Clover Health, DVO1, Eden Health, Plantina, Tala, and Uala. Nelson, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining us on Salt Talks. I talked a little bit about your background there in the introduction but uh, we like to start off every conversation with uh, from the horse's mouth how'd you grow up Uh, you know where were you educated how are you educated and what ultimately led you to this journey as a fintech entrepreneur yeah absolutely and thanks so much for having me john i'd like to think that i
1: was always destined to be an entrepreneur in some respects Uh, very rebellious didn't really listen to my parents did my own thing and it just kind of meandered me way down to this path uh, so i grew up in you know suburban new jersey nothing too crazy uh, and you know, went to Rutgers. But before then, uh, I actually was just in high school and trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. I had very traditional parents. And so on, one hand, on the one hand, my mother uh, really kind of believed that if I were to go to an Ivy League school, get good grades, become a banker, lawyer, or doctor, I'd be like set for life. And then my father was actually an entrepreneur in his own right. He co-founded a company in suburban New Jersey. Uh, he was a software engineer and they were actually doing airline crew optimism which is a very specific, probably global total addressable market of like 30 million annual revenue per year. Uh, so out of their shop, they did about $8 million and annually. And that was essentially designed to help you know flight attendants, pilots, etc. Uh, get scheduled onto the flights that they need to fly on in any given month. It used to be done through note cards and a big whiteboard. And now is done through programming. And so they essentially did all that. So unlike my mom, I think my dad was a little bit more encouraging of the entrepreneurial creative side of me. And his rule of thumb was if it's under a thousand dollars you get respectable grades and you don't throw it away after two weeks i will buy it for you and so that's really what got me into really the design and tapping into the creativity uh side of my brain and uh, that's how i you know started to buy a mac when it before Macs were cool in 2002 2001 i would taught myself photoshop taught myself movie making and all those different things um and really you know i i realized that there was a path forward that isn't just always academics And from there, went to college, did not get into Ivy League school. Mom was not very happy about that. Dad was fine. Uh, Graduated Rutgers in 2009. Interesting time to join financial services. Uh, Went to Merrill Lynch, which became Bank of America. Mom was very happy about that. Uh, Dad was like, cool, going to the career finance path, whatever. Uh, And then after about two and a half years, like you mentioned, at Merrill, Bamel, and BlackRock, I left that because I said I'm never doing finance ever again. Can't stand it. obviously here i am today Uh, and so left that to do my own thing in the startup world trying to figure out what i wanted to be when i grew up Uh, mom was very scared by doing that dad was like finally you're ready to go and be an entrepreneur Uh, and then you know stumbled my way along the way finally ended up launching that consulting company that you had mentioned did really well one of our best clients was a company called blockfi which has done very well in the crypto space and that was the one that made me go, you know what, for the right idea, the right time, I should do things the old-fashioned venture-backed way. And that's really how Percent came to be. So we saw an opportunity in the market. We had a team that knew how to build products. We had a team that knew how to raise money. Uh, and so you know, we saw this was the opportunity to drop it or leave it all behind and uh, get VC money and
0: build something that's going to make an impact in the world in the private credit space. Well, we love mom, but we're glad that dad's uh, entrepreneurial instincts also shine through uh, Nelson, so that, that you're out there building stuff that that consumers are looking for. And let's talk a little bit about Percent. Um, you know, how did the idea come about to build Percent? Could you just give our audience an overview of what you guys are are trying to solve for? Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to think that for most startups, uh, where you start isn't where you end.
1: Uh, the idea you initially had in mind isn't really where you're likely going to get the most traction. So when we start, set out to create Percent in 2018, uh, the opportunity that we saw was to kind of build a better alternative investment platform, if you will. Uh, and so we saw the opportunities that were out there. It was generally pretty high, uh, high minimums, like $25,000, $35,000, very not approachable. Uh, it was about the same yield anywhere you go, 9 to 12%. And it was also requiring you to lock up your cash for like three years, four years, five years. For somebody who has no idea what your platform is all about, I kind of prefer to try before you buy effectively. And so we thought the opportunity was there because all of these different platforms had laid the groundwork to educate these investors that we could actually do something that was shorter duration, uh, comparable yielding and lower minimum. And with that, we'd be able to actually probably penetrate the market a little bit. That was all well and good. We launched our first you know, short duration, comparable yielding, low minimum investments in uh, mid Jan- January 2019, first deal in private beta. Uh, July 2019 uh, was really when we went public with our platform for anybody. Uh, and at that point, as we're kind of going through the process, we realized that, wow, there is like no tech to speak of in this $7 trillion market, which is kind of terrifying if you think about it. Uh, we're building our own order book management systems which we take for granted in traditional capital markets we're building our own compliance management tools and more most scarily i guess we're building our own asset surveillance tools and so we're thinking to ourselves if we can't monitor the assets properly uh, then how is everyone else doing it right and so that's when we start to really adapt and evolve the platform into what you see today which is really an infrastructure provider for private credit markets seven trillion dollar market helping borrowers who need that capital underwriters who structure these transactions, and investors who want to earn a return in private credit get access to source the opportunities, uh, structure them, syndicate them, and surveillance them
0: all in one platform. Uh, End-to-end lifecycle workflow uh, for private credit. So for members of our audience that are less familiar with the type of private credit investments that are out there in the marketplace, what are the types of deals that you guys are are offering to your, your users on the platform?
1: Yeah, what's pretty crazy is private credit powers so much of the global economy and people don't really realize it. So a lot of things that are small business lending, that are consumer loans, that are factoring invoices, that are leasing equipment, all of that falls under the private credit umbrella. If it's not a public company, if it's not not hitting the public debt markets, it's probably private credit. And so after the global financial crisis, you saw a lot of banks stepping away from doing this type of stuff. And that's really where this whole rise of non-bank lending has emerged. And it really has been instrumental in growing the credit markets in the US and internationally. And so anything that's related to that type of asset, that type of product, probably is under private credit. It's the
0: reason why it's $7 trillion and growing at a very rapid clip. Right. And you know it's pretty obvious the opportunity that you guys have tapped into for you know, more retail oriented investors to tap into this massive market that was previously fairly inaccessible for them, as you talked about, you know, high minimums. Uh, illiquid, things like that. But that's only one piece of the puzzle, really, in terms of the value of the platform you guys have created. Could you talk about all three sort of stakeholders in private credit transactions uh, and and the power of sort of bringing all of those onto a single platform and and the opportunity that it generates for each party? Absolutely. It's an interesting market
1: when we first went into it. Our competitor, believe it or not, is actually Excel phone calls and emails. So that is literally what everybody in this market used, And it's You know, when we did it ourselves, uh, we realized that there is so much opportunity here to create real workflow that gets everyone on the same page looking at the same data. So from a borrower's perspective who needs debt capital, uh, they're looking at it as, you know, right now I'm literally just creating multiple data rooms for multiple potential investors. I'm blasting it out. It's a six month process to get capital into the door. It's literally pitching VCs for equity and debt investors for the debt side. And it's a full time job. And then some they're essentially running two jobs. What if there was a way to actually streamline it so you can almost have capital markets in a box for these borrowers, right? And that's really what the Percent Platform enables them to do. On the investor side, it's pretty simple. You have almost these days an expectation of how to invest in a product, uh, whether it's through Robinhood or through Schwab or E-Trade. You expect to be able to do diligence on a company, to be able to actually make an investment very quickly, to be able to monitor it after it's done and see how it's doing. And private credit just never had that. And so we turned that model on its head and made it more similar to public debt investments and taking all those efficiencies and bringing that over to the private side. And the underwriters are almost like the unsung heroes in this space because people normally think of alternative investment platforms. They think, I have a borrower, I have an investor, I'm gonna make them all meet together and then we're all done, right? But the fact of the matter is, there is almost always an underwriter sitting in the middle, whether the underwriter is the platform itself or in our case, it's actually bringing all these other different underwriters who are savvy and have expertise. We bring them into the fold and they use their experience and their skills to be able to use our tools to structure these transactions and find a borrower, create a deal, market it to investors, and then rely on percent to do all things, monitoring of the, of the deal and the performance and servicing after it's done. It's a full suite of services across every single transaction participant. And you just don't see that anywhere else today. So.
0: It's a little bit better than Excel phone calls and emails. Absolutely. And talking about markets for a minute, you know, obviously, um, you guys are an infrastructure provider, so you're not necessarily speculating in the space. But what have you observed on your platform in terms of how recent you know, market volatility, economic headwinds have affected underwriting uh, and investment in private credit?
1: Yeah, it's a very different time than it was in 09, right? Like <laughs> for now, and because of the rise of things like embedded finance and all these different fintech infrastructure solutions, you actually have the ability to monitor the performance in real time. And so our surveillance capabilities allow us to see really the, the actual true health of the economy on the small business side, on the consumer side. And so just taking a look at that, you know, we're seeing performance uh, on these assets have not deteriorated. It's getting a little bit interesting we'll see how long that can stay that can uh keep afloat and stay that way but at the very least for now we're not seeing any alarm bells and so when you look at the markets that have dropped 25 30 percent right we might have one of the best yielding products on the street right now if that's the case because uh, we're still consistently churning out you know 9 10 11 percent annualized returns and because a lot of these investment opportunities are floating rates uh you're going to see it come back to market probably at a higher rate because the fed has picked up the as has done rate heights rate hikes And so, because of that dynamic real-time response to the macro environment, we're able to continue to stay in front of things and provide investors with investment opportunities that we think are very attractive in
0: this hyper-volatile, uncertain economy. I didn't even think about really the data piece of this, which is that you guys, as you talked about, you're replacing Excel and phone calls and people in a way that's aggregating a massive amount of data within the private credit space that was never really done before. What are you guys doing with that data? Are you providing intelligence at all to users of your platform? Are you packaging that uh, and sharing it with institutions in some way? Or how are you guys thinking about how to harness that data in additional ways to unlock more value for investors and for the company? It's absolutely a core
1: pillar of our business, and it's one that we took a long time to build. We've analyzed over 1.5 billion data points in the two and a half, three years that we've been doing this. We've created over 3,700 surveillance reports on an ongoing basis, daily, weekly, monthly, for these different borrowers that we have. But we view data as a core component that underpins everything that we do for the borrower, for the underwriter, and for the investor. So the investor side, pretty simple, right? I make an investment in this opportunity. I have some reasonable expectation of being able to see how that investment is doing. And so the ability for us to provide them surveillance reports on an ongoing basis specific to that investment, investors have found that to be very powerful. And it's something that they normally don't have access to today and what no other platform in private credit provides. On the borrower side, it's a pain to do this actually on an ongoing basis. They actually have to take the time to package it up in a way. And normally they would send it out to anyone who is a debt holder uh, of their of their uh, assets or their debt, right? So they would actually spend the time to create a report, export it, send it out, adjust it, things like that. And it's very painful for them. So for us and our value prop to the borrower, we take it for them, whatever it is that it, format they like, whether it's Excel, whether it's an FTP export uh, file drop, whether it's a uh, tapping into their APIs and their system, whatever they have, we take it. We standardize it, we normalize it into the different asset classes that we have. And then we use that so that underwriters and investors can look at that same exact data. And so it's a very unique value prop. No one else has done it before. And its I don't blame them. It's a daunting, daunting challenge when you have so many different borrowers looking to per- report so many different ways. Uh, we're pretty unique in that regard. Uh, and you know, it's, it's become a very important part of our business.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a major challenge, but also a major value add uh, once you solve for it. Uh, which is amazing. Um, Percent recently added a new asset class, uh, corporate loans. Uh, It's about $140, $150 billion market um, uh, of venture debt market that we're describing. Could you talk a little about the shift in demand you've seen for venture debt um, during this period uh, where we've experienced a slowdown in, in venture funding? For sure. Uh, we started traditionally and for the last few years in
1: asset based finance, essentially securitizations, right? Because in our mind, if we're going to be building infrastructure of private credit markets, let's solve for the hardest possible transaction you can do, which is securitization, and then we can work backwards from there. So we solved that in many respects and with asset-based structuring and corporate-level structuring, which is kind of what goes into a securitization, uh, we thought, all right, well, if that's the case, corporate-level structuring is super easy because there's only one piece of the the two-sided puzzle. Uh, So the natural evolution was to go into venture debt because that was sort of where the vision for the company was going to go in solving more and more parts of the private credit market. And it's been an interesting time to do it. We could have done it in 2020 and 2021, and nobody would have looked at us. In 2022, everyone's looking at us. We're getting signups, uh, every single day, every single hour for companies who are looking for corporate debt because the VC market has largely dried up. And these companies need to find a way to extend runway to be able to actually still finance the growth of their business, to be able to you know continue to reinvest in the business. And the opportunity to do that, which used to come from equity capital, is now being faced with an opportunity to do it through venture debt, essentially. So we've seen tremendous demand on that side. We expect this year to be a banner year for venture debt Uh, And we're already kind of seeing it play out in the signups that we have uh, and the various different opportunities that we're bringing to market.
0: And what what is, you know, this is educational for me as well, as well as people listening, but what is the breakdown in terms of venture equity versus uh, venture debt? And and how is that mix evolving, uh, like you said, with more people exploring venture debt opportunities?
1: Yeah, I would say venture equity is a significantly larger portion uh, because venture debt was almost frowned upon in the past. I think in some right. respects, uh, people didn't want to carry debt on their balance sheet. They prefer to just raise equity. But as founders got a little bit wiser, they realized that you know what? Venture debt is non-dilutive. This is a good outcome for me. I could raise less on the equity side, uh, still want the partnership with the VCs, obviously, but I can actually get the rest of the money that I need from venture debt. And so why not do that? And it became a very compelling proposition so you've seen venture debt start to become more and more acceptable uh starting in 2020 leading in 2021 and this year in particular i'd be very surprised if most startups don't have some sort of venture debt on their balance sheet just by nature of the fact that they want to continue to be able to ensure survivability over the course of this you know call it vc slowdown
0: so switching gears again a little bit the nature of lending you know has continued to evolve over time and the latest Uh, you could call it a fad or you could call it an innovation, uh, depending on where you sit on the subject matter, is buy now, pay later. Now you've seen tons of buy now, pay later companies explode onto the scene. You've seen companies like Square acquire buy now, pay later companies. You see Apple now getting directly into the buy now, pay later space and uh, using some of their own balance sheet capital to, to back those activities. But it certainly exploded during the pandemic in particular. Uh, you know, and it's popular, especially uh, among younger people. What are your thoughts on that space? And is it, is it an innovation? Is it a fad? Does it create problems within credit markets? What's your overall view of the space?
1: Yeah, it's been interesting watching it pick up steam. It's something that I think was very prevalent outside of the US. Uh, I believe that buy now, pay later is here to stay. I think anything that provides consumers more optionality is only a good thing. It can't hurt, right? Uh, but what it does require consumers to do is to be a little bit more careful about how they handle it. They have to monitor it and watch their finances a lot more closely. And that's where things can run into trouble. If they take on more debt than they can afford, if they start to make bad decisions and buy things they weren't, they didn't or couldn't buy before, that's when you start running into problems. And so I think we're starting to see that when inflation has picked up and all these different things are happening, uh, you are going to see consumers tightening their belts a little bit. And it's going to be interesting to see how buy now, pay later shakes out when all is said and done. Having said that, the credit card market is exponentially larger than the BNPL market. And that probably will continue to be the case for quite a bit of time. Uh, but I think consumers are viewing it as another alternative that they may not want to put on the credit card. In which case, you know, I do believe that there is some longevity here. And they can work side by side with credit cards as just giving consumers that choice that they want to predict it and, and measure it out and pay no interest if they can be smart about it uh, or they can just put it on credit card and pay it off every single month and build up their credit score.
0: Right. Do you think that uh, people are underestimating sort of the credit risk that's built into buy now pay later and and you know especially during a recession uh, mm-hmm. and period of market volatility that we're going to experience a higher defaults on payments within the the BNPL space?
1: I think underwriting consumers is very hard in general. And it's a big reason why we've thus far focused more predominantly on small businesses rather than consumers. You just have more data points. You have more conviction around how the business is performing. You have more uh, recourse, all those different things. So it just makes a lot more sense to us. I do think that you've already started to see it, right? Between Klarna and Affirm, defaults are starting to pick up on that side and late payments and things like that. And I believe that a lot of stats are showing right now that consumers are expecting to make a late payment this year just because of everything going on in the market. So it is going to pick up steam. Uh, The impact to the actual overall market is yet to be seen. But it is such a small part of the broader credit market that I don't foresee that being a huge issue in terms
0: of having some sort of systemic risk along the way. So, you know. Percent is one example within a movement of embedded finance, which is basically the integration of of financial solutions into a business's infrastructure uh, in a very streamlined way. How do you think that's transforming business more generally? I think it's a great thing, right? Embedded finance is something that,
1: um, you know, We're starting to realize that most companies in some way, shape or form are a financial services company. If you're taking payments, if you're offering some sort of financial product, if you're doing a pay later type product, uh, that is a financial services company in some way, shape or form. And so the amount of friction that's there or that was there before uh, made it very challenging. It actually consolidated a lot of the competition. There wasn't much of it. And so nowadays, when anyone can become and offer those types of services and have that uh, hook into the consumer, that's only going to be a good thing. That's going to allow for uh, more financial flexibility, more financial freedom, more optionality, more choice. It's all for the positive. So I do believe this rise of embedded finance is super, super important. And actually, I guess, uh, in, in, a, in a bit of a selfish way, it makes us good as well, right? Because all of these embedded finance companies who are offering some sort of lending product are going to need to raise the capital from somewhere. And we are a great conduit for that, for them to help
0: them hit the private credit capital markets. Yeah, so I, I mentioned Apple, and I'd love to, to hear your thoughts more directly on that example, where they've been tiptoeing into financial services. And like you said, given the volume of sales they have, uh, it would almost be malpractice for them not to have gotten into into the space. You know, they have a buy now, pay later solution they've been working on. Uh, they, they started out with a credit card product uh, in partnership with Goldman Sachs and MasterCard. Uh, but what do you think of their move into sort of financial services? Uh, and do you think it's going to set a trend where others in the space are going to sort of follow that lead?
1: yeah it was to your point they they had to do it right they were telling essentially signaling that this was going to happen i think it's a brilliant move on their part think about how much data they actually own about the consumer that all of these buy now pay later companies would love to have access to and so the ability for them to automatically know that information see what their consumers are doing and using their products and buying and looking at and things like that it just gives them a much more comprehensive credit picture that allows them to decide how and when to offer this And on top of that, Apple Pay is by far one of the most seamless experiences, I think, in terms of uh, how to almost like pay with your phone uh, directly that I would say the U.S. is a little bit behind the rest of the world in that regard, uh, maybe years behind. uh, But Apple has done a uh, admirable job of trying to change that. And so being able to integrate that directly into the purchase experience so quickly, so easily um, and have it be in that Apple UX is really, really powerful. And I do expect that to be pretty successful, potentially even more so than the credit card, which I think had some value props, but not a ton. Uh, this one is actually distinctly unique and at the point of sale that they entirely control, which is absolutely fascinating. So I'm I'm bullish on it. I like it.
0: And I think it's going to have, uh, uh, have legs to run. Yeah, it seems like the credit card was just uh, almost an experimentation on Apple's part about dipping their toe into... Uh, financial services type of uh, activities within the firm, but but like you said, the real innovation is bringing uh, you know sort of an embedded finance style product into the marketplace, uh, you know, through something like buy now pay later. But I want to talk uh, U.S. versus international. So one, you guys do global uh, private credit on the platform, and. What what's the volume difference that that you observe in in private credit markets? You know, in terms of opportunities available internationally versus the U.S.
1: Yeah, I do believe that private credit is really permeating all around the world at this point. But from a sheer size standpoint, uh, the U.S. is still dominating just based on the fact that each transaction is just naturally larger in the U.S. right uh, relative to emerging markets. Um, So a big part of our concentration of borrowers of total assets outstanding is still more heavily in the United States. But we see so much potential in in regions like Latin America. We love that, right, because there is an opportunity where VCs are putting money to work there to actually also finance the growth of those developing economies um, to get them, you know, more on a level playing field with the United States. And it's interesting to see because in many respects they bypass so many things that we had to go through whether it was writing a check or like you know having a real credit card like all those things down there are all done through the phone effectively and so you have the opportunity to actually um, do something that gets you more data more conviction and more real time than you could even here in the us so fascinating place to, to be and we love everything we're doing in, in latin america we've dabbled in africa we've dabbled in the eu we've dabbled in in asia uh, but I think, you know, for us for right now, at least the U.S. and LATAM is definitely, definitely the core focus. Uh, but at its core, our job is to essentially provide infrastructure in this space. Right. So the things that we're doing around market standards, deal structure standards are all things that we're essentially making it the de facto standard for all of private credit, whether it's the U.S. or globally. And so things that you see around creating cash control in the United States, we have that mirrored type structure in Latin America as well. So we're turning all of these borrowers into almost like institutionally ready capital markets friendly companies because they have such a great history of doing these types of transactions that are effectively true securitizations that it allows them to hit the institutional markets when they're ready and we'll be right there with them to support them when they get there. So it is kind of making that international standard of private credit. That's the
0: name of the game for us. So for investors on your platform, let's say you know, you're a retail investor, you're excited about this access to private credit markets, but you go on, you're trying to evaluate things deal by deal. It can be a little bit overwhelming if you're not familiar uh, with credit underwriting. What are the solutions on your platform in terms of investing in individual deals? Or what if someone just wants to get more holistic exposure to the private credit market? For sure. I'd like to think that we're probably the
1: most transparent platform out there in terms of providing visibility into underlying performance of the assets and the borrowers. So the beauty of the platform is that obviously we have a lot of research that our marketing team has put out and insights and things like that, just to kind of get a better sense of how to invest on the platform and on percent. Uh, But on top of that, we also have the ability for them to look at surveillance reports. So these borrowers hit the market on a regular basis every couple months, basically. They can keep an eye out on which borrowers they like. They can monitor the surveillance and the performance. And at that point, they can decide whether they wanna pull the trigger or not. It's interesting because we do have a couple of crypto borrowers on the platform. And you can see because of almost like the real-time nature of our surveillance, you could see the overcloudization requirements that we had for that borrower dip as crypto fell at the same time. And then you can almost know exactly to the day when they margin called their, their users and their borrowers and the lend the loans, and you saw the overcloudization rise up again, which was absolutely fascinating to watch. And we give them that transparency. So investors can even, because of that, get comfortable with a crypto-based product, even in times of crypto volatility. It's a really powerful thing that you don't see elsewhere in terms of if they want to do less management and less you know direct deals and focus on oh i want e-commerce i want crypto i want this i want that they don't have to do that right they can take a blended view of everything uh, we actually recently launched in a couple months ago what we like to call our blended note it's a basket of various different opportunities it could be global it could be total market it could be us only those are all things that flavors that we offer for investors they come to market every month every two months or so and it's more of a set it and forget it approach. So that again, optionality for investors around direct deals versus um, set it and forget it—we give them that flexibility
0: as well, uh, beyond just you know the asset class
1: diversification.
0: Yeah, that, that's amazing that you guys have given people the ability to uh, to invest across you know types of loans and, and geographies in one click. Um, Talking about crypto, this is less of a conversation about percent and more your personal views as an entrepreneur, somebody who worked very closely with BlockFi uh, in its early days. But what are your views on how blockchain and crypto are disrupting uh, basically our financial system and financial markets? And, and how much do you think they'll continue to disrupt the way our financial system operates?
1: Yeah, I think It's it's 10 years into its life at this point. Uh, but in so many ways, it's still in its infancy. Uh, and I think it's going to take regulators having a, giving a little bit more clarity on how they treat these types of securities or commodities or whatever it may be for us to see real adoption, right? So I think recently... Um, the uh, Congress came out with an idea, a draft of what they think they can do here, mm-hmm. uh, definitely getting a lot of publicity on the crypto Twitterverse. Uh, but I think ultimately, you know, you need that in order for companies to know how they should operate and how they, they can operate above the law. Because as of right now, it is most definitely a wild west. You see what happened with Luna um, and, and Terra, and that's just, you know, the, the SEC, if that happened in a regulated entity, the SEC would have had a field day with that, because right. that's just totally not allowed. Uh, So in this regard, I think I like the concept of it. I like the prospect of it. I think there are real world use cases that could come to life at some point. But I think we are not quite there yet by any stretch of the imagination. Um, But, you know, for us, we like to almost stay crypto adjacent at all times. Right. So actually what we just launched uh, earlier, this is being filmed on June 9th. So uh, we have one that is closing on June 15th. Um, the first ever blended note, that basket product we talked about, uh, with a credit default swap built into it, that has some elements of DeFi. So we partner with a company uh, who is building essentially CDS products for private credit, where they're a launch partner and they're using DeFi to generate a portion of the yield. They're using traditional finance and like us to be able to generate the other portion of the yield. And so we like to stay on top of these types of things where true innovation is happening and bring the uh, benefits of DeFi and blockchain and crypto. To the traditional markets in a way that is, I think, low friction, easily understood, and truly adding value to the ecosystem instead of just shuffling money around, which is what a lot of what they're doing today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That that's a fascinating uh, product that I'm going to go take a look at right now. You know, I love personally, even with my own money, going and experimenting with different uh, fintech platforms that are providing access to to asset classes like you guys are doing with private credit. Uh, so, looking forward to checking that one out. But Nelson, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Again, Nelson Chu from Percent. Uh, go check them out. Uh, it's percent.com. I don't know how much that domain cost you guys, but fantastic domain. But uh, go check them out. If nothing else, learn more about private credit uh, and the innovations that that Percent uh, has, has engineered within the space. Thanks so much for having me, John. It was great speaking with you. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's SALT Talk with Nelson Chu. We, in particular, love talking FinTech. It's an area at SkyBridge that we're heavily invested in uh, and an area on SALT at our conferences and on these talks that we love digging deeper into. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous SALT Talks, you can access them all on our website at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, uh, which is called SALT Tube, or any Anywhere that you find and listen to podcasts, you can also uh, download and listen to any of our Salt Talks episodes as well. We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. On behalf of the entire Salt team, this is John Darcy signing off from Salt Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.